Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 73. In today's episode, I interview writer, feminist, food activist, and environmentalist, Lierre Keith. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode to hear about a future work of hers entitled Bright Green Lies, find what Lierre's place on this planet is, as well as why we should all have a dog. Alrighty guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Lier Keith. Now Lier, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. So I was a vegan for 20 years and I did permanent damage to my body. So I had to reevaluate and reinvestigate everything I thought I knew about health and about um environmentalism and my place in the universe and all of that and it's a really hard and scary journey for all of us who have been through it but um, it's inevitable the rubber hits the road and the diet fails and then what are you left with so that has that's my journey in 10 seconds or 10 sentences or less <laughs> okay so a couple things I want to explore with this because again you wrote the vegetarian myth like you realized this was not serving your body any further what really were any of the turnaround points uh, that you were just like, okay, I've got to do something about this and make these changes? And what were those changes for you? So about two years into being a vegan, I was already having really serious health problems. Um, I had I started to develop degenerative disc disease in my spine. And at that point, it was already permanent. So I wrecked my spine doing this. A lot of people end up with joint problems on, on that kind of a diet. And I understand the reasons now, but at the time, of course, I didn't. And when you're in the middle of that world, um, it's really, really hard to put together um, the fact that you're having health problems and the what you think is true about that diet because something that righteous is not supposed to cause harm. Um, so you have terrible cognitive dissonance. And you'll do anything not to face the fact that it's the diet that's doing this to you. And it's really hard. <laughs> so, Were there any things that like specifically came up where you you just, 
you recognize now that you were just completely pushing away, whether it like specifically be on diet or something else? Um, yeah, because, uh, you know, even within that short period of time, I started to have all kinds of troubles. So I started to have this terrible pain in my back all the time. Um, I stopped being able to digest my food. I, now I know my condition is called gastroparesis, but at the time I didn't know why I felt nauseated all the time. Um, I ended up with an autoimmune disease. I have Hashimoto's. So I had this tremendous exhaustion and all over just body pain that nobody could explain because nobody was looking for an autoimmune disease. Um, I stopped menstruating almost entirely. My skin was so dry it hurt to move. Um, then that whole constellation of anxiety, depression, exhaustion, uh, that's very, very common on all kinds of low-fat diets and particularly vegan diets. So all of that just started coming apart within the first few years of being a vegan. But again, you know, you just refuse to look at that any of this might be caused by the diet. And that is exacerbated um, by the fact that when you, you join up to be a vegan, uh, it tends to be a very cult-like experience. And all your friends turn, you know, end up being vegan. You, know, you find the vegans, they find you, you enter this whole new world. And of course, you're proselytizing to everyone. So you're in an echo chamber where all you see reflected back is other people who agree with you and refuse to acknowledge that you might be doing damage to yourself. So those of us who did this long term, I mean, all of my friends from back then, um, we all ended it up with damage. Um, those of us who did it mo the most intensely and for the longest amount of time, like me, ended up with the worst damage. Um, some of my friends gave up sooner than I did, and they were smart. And at the time, of course, I was horrified that they weren't continuing. Um, of course, now I look back at this and just shake my head. But, um, yeah, it's, so it's very hard. It's a very hard journey. And I, I get emails from people all the time who are right in the middle of that, and they understand that it's failing them, but they don't know what to do next. And it's not a fun moment. And how did this then all lead into uh, really maybe the idea for and the writing of the vegetarian myth? So, yeah, I think there's probably three answers to that. The first is that for myself, I had to figure out why didn't this work? And what does it mean for me now? What is my place on this planet and even in the cosmos? Because you think you found this way to live, this beautiful, sustainable, peaceful, you know, way of life that honors the earth and doesn't hurt animals. And it has to be right because those are the right values. So how does this not work? And then when it fails you, you're sort of left in this collapse, which is really a spiritual collapse for a lot of us. Like, well, then what is my, my place in the universe? I don't want to live in a universe where I have to hurt animals to live. And that's very, very hard for the first year or two. So that was one thing, was just my own investigation into all of that. Um, the second reason that I wrote that book was because I really wanted to stop the next generation of idealistic young people from making the same mistakes that my generation made, because the diet does not work, not long term. Um, you will end up with health problems if you do it long enough, and it's for no good reason. You don't have to hurt your body to be a good person who's doing good work in the world. Um, so I wanted to investigate why all of their claims turn out not to really be true. And we can all agree about factory farming. I'll say that, you know, to anybody, but the rest of their claims really do fall apart if you have more information. So you can be the same person who cares about the same things and still wants that just sustainable world. Um, but you may make different decisions if you have more information and you don't have to hurt yourself to be a good person. So I wanted all of that information in one place for 
that next 16-year-old girl who really thinks this is the best thing to be if she cares about the planet. I, I was that girl. I know what she thinks, and I know what the vegans are telling her. So I wanted to address that um, in the next generation because we all tried it. These people my age, we all tried it, and it didn't work. So there's that. And then I also, um, you get tired of having the same arguments with people um, because you have to sit and talk for two or three hours each time to really lay this all out. And I decided it was just easier to write a book and say, you know what, I address all of this. Other people have addressed all of this. And here it is in one place. You can start here. And it's a lot easier than having to have that discussion over and over and over one by one to just have the information in one place. So I, I think those are the three main reasons that I did it. In that, you mentioned uh, sustainability a few times. I mean, y you can tell like you're just caring about the environment. Um, talking about the the factory farming versus or conventional farming. What are just some practical steps that really you think everybody should be able to take? Uh, whether when it comes to almost saving the planet, if you will, from that standpoint. So that goes in two directions, and the first is you know we all have this impulse to live our lives in a way that doesn't create that cognitive dissonance. So, you know, we have these values. How do we align our personal lives with those values? Um, and that's not a bad impulse. You know, the, the only problem with it is, is that that kind of personal purity actually doesn't mean anything about political change. So while I encourage people to try to find the things that bring their lives into alignment and that make them happy on a daily basis, you know, feel like I'm doing a good thing here, that's all well and good, but the other part of that is that we really do need um, serious and sustained political action because the forces that are destroying the planet are not going to be moved by our personal consumer choices. We really do need serious political movements that can challenge um, you know, the arrangement of power on this planet. They're global, <laughs> they're vicious, they mean business, and you know, me buying this versus that isn't going to change the nature of those systems. So we need both things. And I understand that a lot of us get our hope and our joy out of doing the personal things. So I do. I mean, I spend a lot of time and a lot of money making sure that I support local farms and that, you know, I grow a lot of my own food. And the, all of that makes me really happy to know that I'm building topsoil and repairing habitat and helping the rivers and all the things I do with the food I buy. But I also know that, you know, when you know, capitalist corporations decide they want my trees or they want the minerals or the fracking rights under my land, they're going to come and get it, you know, and nothing I do as an individual is going to stop that. And no amount of buying this food over that food is going to stop that. The only thing that's going to stop that is, you know, those kinds of broad-based political movements that can fight that power. So both things have to happen. Um, so I don't know, does that answer your question? Yes, and I'm actually uh, a little, um, I'm not a little intrigued. I completely agree with the, the first part of it, the simple part almost, if the one that we can do on that daily basis. Like I was just to the farmer's market this morning. Uh, I'm going to be out in the garden later this afternoon. I can take care of it from that standpoint. What is, what is the best way to almost go about it, I guess, as far as that political action to really have uh, more of a massive impact, if you will? Well, the first thing is we have to acknowledge the scale of the problem. And I think this is where people get overwhelmed because we're talking about, you know, vast global, almost demonic systems that have gone absolutely rabid with destruction. I mean, we have created a reward system for sociopathic behavior. 
So, for instance, you know, we have we have created these things called corporations, which literally don't even have people. They're fake entities that are treated as people, but um, there's no way to hold them accountable. That's the entire point of a corporation: is that the people who sit on the board who make the decisions are not held liable. So, all of the profits are privatized, but all of the costs are commonized. They're they're, they're the public bears them, and the planet bears them. But all the profits, of course, just go to a few individuals. This is insane, but this is what's ruling the planet right now. So even just to start there, I mean, there will not be life on Earth as long as corporate personhood stands. I mean, it's just, it's out of the question. So that's one place where people have to have got to start applying more leverage, and they need to understand what corporate personhood has done to our planet. Um, it's not enough to just say vaguely, well, greed is a problem. No, we have incentivized greed. We have legalized greed. You know, we have supported greed um, by creating an economic system that revolves around it. And that's what has to be taken down just to start with. So there's, you know, one section of the problem. Then you can talk about capitalism. So there's this, you know, an economic system that really has only been around fully since 1832. Um, not very long, in fact. Um, and this system says that, um, you know, private, that people, you know, organizing their economic conditions around... Uh, wanting to create more and more wealth um, is the way to go. And what that means is that what rich people want is what will be produced and things like food and housing and medical care, which don't create a lot of profit, um, aren't going to be produced. What gets produced is what creates more capital for people with capital. And that's, again, a system that human beings have set up, which has been disastrous for the planet and certainly for human rights. So there are other ways to have economic systems. This is only one. It hasn't been around that long, but everybody acts like it's somehow set in stone or you know the only way to do things. And it's just historically insane. It's not true. It hasn't been around that long. There are other ways to even have market economies that are nestled inside moral economies. That's really how people have done things for millennia. And there's no reason that we couldn't have that again, where we put other things above a profit motive, things that matter like human rights and human needs. Um, so there's another layer of it is just we have to, we're going to have to question capitalism. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. And capitalism means you have to have 3% growth every year or it collapses. But where does that leave you? I mean, it, there's, we've only got this one planet. We can't keep consuming it endlessly um, and have life left at the end of the day. So we're up against that now. Um, we're running out of everything. We've hit peak everything. And, you know, we lose 200 species a day are going extinct. And this is because, again, we've incentivized a way of life that is just not in touch with material reality in any way. So that's another system. Um, underneath that, we have an older system that's called civilization. And this has been around for maybe 10,000 years. And that's a way of life that is um, demarcated by the growth of cities. So what that actually means is people living in um, population nodes so there's too many people. And what they require then is the importation of resources. This is because they've used up their own. So if you think about a city, of course, right, it's mostly concrete. <laughs> there's no way to get food without bringing it in for somewhere, somewhere else. So the food, the energy, the water, all of that has to come from somewhere else. So from that point forward, it doesn't actually matter what kinds of beautiful nonviolent values those people hold in their hearts that city is dependent on imperialism and genocide because the food, the energy, the water have to come from somewhere else. They have to go out and get them from the surrounding 
people who are living sustainably. And that is the last 10,000 years in one paragraph. That is the history of the world starting 10,000 years ago. So you have this ever-expanding power center at the middle that conquers all the surrounding people, takes all their resources, including human resources, including human slaves, brings them into the power center, and this goes on from somewhere 800 to 2,000 years, and then it collapses. And that figure, 800 to 2,000 years, is very specific. That's when the soil gives out. Um, you can only do agriculture for that long, and then it's over. And then the whole thing collapses, and then it will start over again in some neighboring area. So that's the cycle of civilization. It can never be sustained. This is a, a way of life that has no future. The end is written into the beginning because it's always based on drawdown. It's based on extracting resources faster than they're going to reproduce, especially the soil. And this is where we come to agriculture because the basis of civilization is agriculture. And agriculture means you take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off it. And I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it to human use. So the forest, the prairie, the wetland is destroyed. And all you're growing is a monocrop of humans. So wheat, corn, soy, whatever. Um, but ultimately, it all goes to feed humans. Humans are now, um, have taken over 40% of what's, the, what's called the primary production capacity of the earth. So 40% of the earth's surface just goes to, to, to support humans. Um, we are only one species among millions. So this is obviously not going to last. But what happens is, of course, the soil gives out because soil is not meant to be cleared. It's not meant to just grow annual monocrops on it. Um, it's actually a living substance. And every time you do that, you destroy it. Um, and this is part of the problem, you know, to get back to the vegetarian and the vegan thing. I thought that that was a sustainable and just, you know, source of food. And when I found out what agriculture really was and what it meant for the planet, I was left with that tremendous you know, kind of dissonance, where I could see, you know, the problem was that every year we're destroying more soil, we're destroying more habitat for animals, but we have to keep doing it because once you start down that path, you're destroying the soil, all right, we'll conquer some more land, take it from the animals and plants that are there, now we'll destroy that land and grow some more humans, well, when that soil's depleted, we'll take the next round and do that, the problem is there's no continents left, right, we are now at the edge of this, there's no more land left to take for humans, and we've blown through all the topsoil, the planet has been skinned alive, and this is why it's not just, it's not sustainable, it, you know, it's not friendly to animals, we've taken over 98% of their habitat, um, there's no way that can be called animal friendly or sustainable. But I didn't know that when I was 16. I didn't understand the depth of the problem. And for the amount of passion and love that vegans have for animals in the earth, what they don't have is information. They don't have enough information to understand that the foods they are proposing are the foods that started this problem, agricultural foods. Wow, there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, do, do not apologize for that. Please, I mean, I just should be thanking you uh and i think listeners really can appreciate this too i mean the systematic approach in which you walk through that though was really incredible uh the really the last thing that you got me thinking on the uh with that emphasis on topsoil i, I i've read a, a few of joel salatin's books mm -hmm. and i remember him talking about when they really kind of just first started in the Shenandoah Valley, like there was no topsoil yeah. on any of his farms. But now I think they've measured it at like 10 or 12 feet of topsoil just by continuously uh, just rotating everything. Yep. Not Animals integrated into perennial polycultures. That exactly. is nature's model. It is the only thing that builds topsoil. It is how the Great Plains were built. 
It's how the African savannah was built. It is the only way to build topsoil. They have built so much topsoil at Polyface Farm, they've actually had to raise the fence posts. Yes, I do remember him talking about that. Soil. That is a, it's a miracle. Like hear the angels sing when you hear that, because <laughs> that is an incredible thing. And that is the only hope our planet has is Joel Salatin and Alan Savory. We've yes. got to understand it's perennial polycultures with animals. That is the only way forward. And I can talk more about that if you want, or we can go another direction. Uh, I actually, Hey, please share. Yeah. I mean, any, any thoughts you have, any, any just insight on it? Uh, go to town, please. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, we're going to take one acre of land, and we have two options for this acre of land. Um, we can take that acre of land, and we can um, destroy the life that is on there. So we're going to remove all the plants. All the animals now have nowhere to go. They are going to be forced into extinction. And we're going to take that bare soil, which is now degrading the soil as well, and we're going to plant corn for an acre of land. Um, as we do this, the corn is going to mine the soil. Um, they are an annual crop. They do not have deep roots. Annual crops do not have time to build deep roots. If you think about a you know, wheat stalk or a corn stalk versus a tree, you can see how small they are. <laughs> they don't have time to have deep roots. The only plants that can deep burrow all the way down into the soil and reach the bedrock where the minerals are are, an, are perennial plants because they have time to build those kinds of roots. So every time you plant an annual crop like corn or wheat, um, you're, they call it mining the soil, and that's exactly what it is because they're extracting minerals, they're not replacing them. So you're destroying the soil, the, the texture of the soil itself, the body of the soil, but you're also stripping it of minerals. The other problem with annuals is that because they lack those deep roots, there's no way for water to enter the soil. So every time it rains, that rain just runs off. The, the, those deep-rooted perennials literally make physical channels in the soil, which is how water is absorbed deeply down into the soil. It's how the water table is recharged, um, and it's, it creates like a giant sponge. So as the summer you know, goes on, and there's less and less rain and more and more hot weather, perennial plants are holding that water deep in that sponge and they can draw it up slowly and provide some moisture for the rest of the living community. Um, you and I cannot drink water from the soil, but those plants can get it out for us and provide things, you know, provide ways that moisture does continue on the surface of the earth. And so water, I mean, there's no way to have water again without those perennial plants. So it recharges on the local rivers, it recharges the water table, it holds it as a sponge inside the soil, and then brings it up for the rest of, of the living community. None of that can happen with annual plants. They simply don't have the root structure for it. So at every level, we have you know, made a huge wound across the fabric of life. Okay, We have wiped the life off the surface of the land. We're destroying the soil itself. We're not letting the water do the job that it needs to do and we're mining the soil. So that's what happens. Now you have an acre of corn on that land. At the end of the season, you can harvest that corn and you can take it to a cow that's living in horrible conditions on a cement floor in a metal building, miserable life, and you can feed her that corn. She's now gonna be sick because that's not her native diet, but she will get really fat really fast. And so you can have cheap beef to feed to people, um, but it will make them sick as well because that meat, the fat and the protein in that meat do not meet the needs of the human template because it's not meat that's ever existed before. Cows are not meant to eat corn. It's not what they've eaten until 1950. Cows never ate corn. So 
uh, just one just step by step along that whole domino, you've got nothing but death and destruction, including the sick humans at the end of it who eat the sick meat. Okay, that's one acre. Now, we're going to go to another acre of land. You leave that grass in place. You leave that perennial polyculture. You've got insects. You've got small mammals. You've got, um, you've got all kinds of amphibians. You've got reptiles. You've got even some larger mammals. You've got birds. They're all living on that acre. They call it home. Okay, That's where they live. It's where they eat. It's where they sleep. It's where they have babies. It's the place they know as home. They get to stay there because you're leaving it in place. Every time it rains, the water table is restored. Any nearby streams and rivers are still intact. There's no soil washing into them. Um, you know, the, the water is clear. The fish can stay there. There's probably trees lining that bank. The trees get to stay there. Without that shade, the fish can't reproduce. The water's too hot. The sh- so the trees get to stay there. Life continues. But what's on that acre of land is also a large mammal, a bison, a cow, some kind of large ruminant whose um, action on that land keeps the nutrient cycle moving. You cannot have a healthy grassland without ruminants, which I can get into if you want. But trust me on this. She needs to be there to eat that grass or all of life will die. Okay, so she's there as well. And at the end of that same you know, year, humans may harvest her and eat her. And now we have food as well. And when we die... We also get reabsorbed back into that into that world, and the soil eats us all in the end. So we are part of that cycle, um, and by eating that cow, we are healthy. The grass stays healthy, and all of that life continues. You could come back in ten thousand years. The only difference would be more topsoil, which is to say, more life. So that's the death that's part of life, and those are our options. We can be the death that's killing all life in that first scenario. We can be the death that's part of life in that second scenario. It's the same acre of land. It's the same amount of food for humans. But in that first scenario, everything dies. And in the second scenario, it all goes on until the sun burns out. And those are our options. And for two and a half million years, that was how we lived. We were participants. And we evolved on the, you know, the African savanna, eating those large ruminants that ate the grasses, and we were part of that cycle. We were not monsters and destroyers. It's only in the last 10,000 years that that other scenario came to be. Lear, thank you for the, the visual on, on all of that. I, I think that makes it very easy, at least for myself, to really understand where everything falls in that cycle. And I, I, almost, I guess I want to play devil's advocate. Uh, which I, I hate the word now because I heard a comedian say, that's just another way to say I'm about to be an asshole right now. <laughs> um, and basically, so really what I want to get to, you were talking about annuals and you brought up like corn or wheat specifically, right? Sure. Or soybeans, whatever it might be. Um, think about uh, thinking about it now. Uh, what, if, what if that goes to, okay, my garden out in the back there. Uh, I have tomatoes, I have peppers, I have, I mean, so on and so forth. Really, with the exception of, um, like, my parents have asparagus. That's that's a perennial. Mm-hmm. Um, but with those types of annuals, how does that affect the soil then uh, compared to something like the, the corns or the wheats as well? Okay, so, yeah, a lot of people get worried because, of course, lots of us have backyard gardens. And they're like, oh, no, my tomatoes. Um, <laughs> the thing to remember is that human beings only get about 6% of their calories, their energy intake from vegetables. It's really marginal what we do in our backyards with our gardens. I don't actually care. 
I mean, obviously, try your best to take care of your soil. So use a mulch, you know, grow green cover crops, whatever you can do to keep that soil healthy. But it's an absolutely marginal amount of land, and it doesn't actually matter that much. Um, what we're really talking about here is, you know, millions upon millions of acres that have taken over entire continents to grow, you know, the, the, the crops that are now providing 80% of the calories for humans, which is those annual monocrops. That's what I mean when I say agriculture. Wheat, in particular, has just been one of the most destructive things that's ever happened to the planet. But you could add rice to that. Rice, is, rice agriculture actually marks the beginning of global warming. Um, okay, so let's, it's let's very, dive very a little deeper in on this one because I've not heard this uh, as much. No, and if true. you could expand upon it, that, that would the, be fantastic. Okay, if you take, if you look at um, the you know the carbon that's been increased in the atmosphere um, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so say year eighteen hundred till now, it's a very steep line up. A um, lot of carbon, obviously, has been introduced since then. But if you take that same point, 1800, and you back that up 10,000 years, same amount of carbon has been released into the atmosphere from doing agriculture. Um, so it took a lot longer, but it's the same process of releasing carbon. The reason is because it destroys the soil. And the basic building block of soil is carbon. So every time you know you clear away that perennial cover and you expose that soil, and that soil is literally just being eaten alive <laughs> by the bacteria, and it, it's oxygenating a lot. I mean, you're introducing oxygen every time you do this. And what that means is those biological processes increase, and ultimately what's being released is carbon. Um, that's the waste product from all of that. So the soil is literally being eaten, and that carbon's being released. So that's the problem. And rice agriculture is uh, very very bad, particularly bad at that because it happens in a kind of a wetland environment and also because wetlands are a really great sink of carbon and that's what's destroyed to make rice agriculture. So there's a huge blip in the carbon map uh, when you uh, look back to when ag rice agriculture begins in Asia. Um, yeah, it's the worst one. It's the worst offender is rice. Um, Lear, so uh, yeah, don't quick know question this. on that. Oh, yeah, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say there's a really great book just on this subject that's called Plows, Plagues, and Petroleum by Paul Rudiman. And if your uh, listeners are intrigued, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Very accessible. He's a scientist, but it's meant for a general audience. And he will walk you through exactly what's going on here. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. I'll make sure to try and get a link in the show notes uh, just so everybody can check that book out as yeah. well. Uh, my question was going to be, um, I guess with rice, like are we talking – uh, or are there any differences between uh, your just common rices that are always like basically like the monocropping rice versus any of the wild rices or the so-called wild rices maybe that are grown? Um, at this point, I would say not really. Um, yeah. you, you might be able to find like rice that's harvested in Minnesota by traditional people and, you know, you want to support them, so you give them their, your money. Um, and that's fine. That's a different plant than the, the rice that's grown in Asia. Because um, the rice that's grown in Asia is an annual. The rices, I think, that are in Minnesota are more perennially minded. Um, wow. okay. The problem is when you take over land um, and just convert it to one of these monocrops. That's really the problem. When it's no longer living in a community with, you know, a million other plants that are doing their jobs, um, that's when you run into these kinds of problems. Um, and it's really interesting because some of the native people in, in that kind of upper Midwest area who do harvest wild rice, they have very um, strict rules um, about how much to harvest, when you can harvest, what kinds of plants to harvest. And if you look at what those rules are, 
what those rules have meant is that they have not been able to develop it agriculturally. So somehow, whether it was a spiritual knowledge or whether it was a, just a deeper human knowledge, um, somebody knew that this was a bad idea to take this any further, that harvesting from the wild was fine, but you didn't want to let this get out of hand um, because it would lead to you know just the devastation of the ecosystem. And that to me is fascinating that somebody knew that or was told that. Um, you know, a lot of times when you ask people, where did you get this knowledge? They'll say, well, the plant told us, or, you know, the great spirit told us, or, you know, these, these bigger spiritual powers um, gave us guidance about this. And I don't want to shrug that off. The people who believe those things have lived in place for thousands of years and not destroyed their land. The people who don't believe those things have devastated the planet. So wherever you stand in terms of being an atheist, not an atheist, a believer or not, there's something to be said for traditional wisdom that keeps you know, biomes intact and people living in good ways. And that to me is a really great example where it's just kind of a mystery. Where did this knowledge come from? But they knew it. They knew not to take this any further. Um, and where that knowledge is missing, we've devastated the planet. Yeah, we've just lost that that feeling, that connection with nature. And once that becomes gone, like you said, now it's just monocropping, takeover. We don't recognize it because we can't, We we, we don't have that feeling. We don't have that sense of uh, touch of just whatever it is with, of sensing what the planet is going through because I'm sure if Mother Nature could uh, speak to everybody, uh, she she would be screaming in pain right now. Yeah, it's pretty awful. It's just, it's just life is being dismembered before our eyes and nobody even, there's so few of us who are even aware of how bad it is. And the global warming thing is just, it's just insane how bad it's gotten. And we're still in total denial in this country about what's happening. So let's switch gears a little. Okay. Uh, what's one law you think everybody should break? Oh, my God. Um, I don't think that we should let corporations exist. So I think we should take back our money. It's our money. They stole it. I think we should take back all that money, and we should redistribute it to repair the planet and to provide for human needs. And the most important human need right now that I see on a global scale is honestly the human rights of women and girls. And the reason I say that is because, not just because women and girls count, because we do, but the number one thing that drops the birth rate, this has been studied backwards, forwards, and inside out. The number one thing that drops the birth rate around the globe is simply teaching a girl to read. That when women and girls have that much more power over their lives, they choose to have fewer children. They have the power to do it, and they're allowed to do it, and they do it. Um, and when all things being equal, when everybody has you know, some basic human rights covered, access to universal health care. It's really interesting. People basically choose to have two children. That ends up being the global average. Um, if they're not living in poverty and not living in extreme conditions of patriarchy, women choose to have two children. That is replacement level. We breed at replacement levels if we're given a choice, just like every other species. And that to me is the most pressing problem right now is the fact that we have so overshot the carrying capacity of this planet. And as, as an addendum to that, the solution is so simple. We don't need the human rights horrors of China with the one-child policy. It's just been absolutely a disaster. All we need to do is give girls some power over their lives, and everything um, could be. We could save this planet. It's not too late. So to me, that's it. That's, those are the laws we should break. We should take back that money from the you know the corporate overlords. Refuse to admit that they are people take back all the wealth that they've stolen from us for the last 150 years and redistribute it, especially to women and girls. And most of this problem would solve itself pretty quickly. It's also true that when you give women money 
around the globe, um, what happens is people are taken care of. Children go to school, people are fed, old people get what they need. Um, women take care of their families and their communities in a way that patriarchy does not allow men to do. Men don't do those things when they get money generally, but women do. So giving women girls what they need is really the way to turn this boat around. And obviously the men who are, you know, allies to women and who understand the problem, you know, can join in on that. Um, this is not a biological problem. I refuse to believe this is a biological problem. Men are not biologically, you know, destined to dominate women and the planet. I, I don't believe that about men. I have hope for men's humanity. There are men who are on our side. So I think most men who look at this would say the same thing. Like, yeah, this is the way forward. We got to put women and girls in charge and we got to give them what they need. And every indication is that that would um, be what's needed to actually, you know, make the change, the really profound change that has to happen. So that's what I would say. Break those laws, take our money back. Lear, with distributing that money, because now I'm, I'm very curious because I'm always looking for uh, basically the ways that I can give back. What can I do uh, with some of my money to really put it to good use? Um, now that could go, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about uh, any places that you really like supporting, um, but I'm also curious about the reading. I mean, does this uh, does this also just talk about investing, or I, I guess giving towards education, like pencils for promise, like building schools in these, uh, I guess, impoverished areas, if you will, uh, or is it more, no, just trying to get money to the families, uh, or specifically to the women of families, uh, and then they will instinctually uh, I guess know what to do with it how how uh, really do we go about that yeah you know there's a few ways I mean it's great to give money if you have it to feel like you know you're making a personal donation that's a great feeling and if people want to be generous that way they should um, and there are great groups out there that that are you know fighting this on every level on a human rights level on an environmental level on a feminist level um, and that that's great um, and that should happen but it's a bigger problem than just us giving charity because the entire system is that pyramid scheme. And that's okay, really yeah. what we need you know, is to have those kinds of movements that can fight, that can fight on a political level uh, to rearrange those material conditions back toward justice. So it's both things, you know, and I know we all, I mean, they talk about the three different levels of activism that people feel, their heads, their hearts, and their hands. And we all give for different reasons. We're all committed for different reasons. And there are people who just in the here and now want to, make that difference, see that difference, be that difference right in their local communities, and that's great. Um, but there are also people who need to do the bigger kinds of challenges to global power. Um, so I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that it's uh, it's a much bigger struggle than just you or I giving our $20 um, here and there because, you know, our money's been stolen, our resources have been stolen, our land has been stolen. You know, everything's been taken from us and converted into a funnel, you know, up toward that top, you know, the 1%. And that is the system that we're going to have to, we're going to have to challenge it and we're going to have to bring it down. What is the best way to challenge that? Uh, I guess as an individual, though, I, I think that's where I see, uh, or I'm trying to take in all of what you're saying, but I, I struggle to see, okay, where do I do that myself? Where do I have my family do that? Um, right so that we can have a larger impact than just a n equals one type thing. Sure. Well, you know, partly it's going to depend on, you know, what your personal passion is. So for some of us, that's food and nutrition and food justice. For some of us, it's going to be, you know, protecting this river or protecting that mountain. And for some people that's going to be, you know, fighting racism and police violence. I, I think overall that the, the 
as long as you see that all of those problems are connected and that there's a larger system that we're all fighting, um, you're in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. That's all to the good. Nobody can fight at all. But we have to see that all these movements are connected and that there's that kind of overarching system that's about that dominator mentality that we're all fighting. Um, and probably for your listenership, you know, they're most interested in health and nutrition things. And I would say that there's, there's a lot of good groups right now that are doing just fabulous stuff about uh, food and food justice. So starting with the Weston Price Foundation, that's a great resource. And they're really well organized. You know, you can go to their website and find your local chapter leader, no matter where you live. I can guarantee you at this point, there's probably a chapter leader and get involved. And they do everything from fighting really bad policy in Washington, D.C., fighting for our access to have, um, you know, raw milk available to everyone, um, fighting for farms to be able to sell directly to consumers. These are really important things in terms of food justice. And so they're fighting on every level for all that great stuff in this country and around the world. So if food justice is your thing, that's a great place to start is the Western Price Foundation. Um, A couple other really great groups out there would be Alan Savory um, and his group, um, uh, the Savory Institute. And these are people who on a larger scale are trying to understand how to use um, mostly uh, cattle but other livestock as well to regenerate land. And they have been wildly successful. This has been his life's work. And he's elderly now, but he's still at it. They have a huge demonstration site in Zimbabwe, which is where he's from. But right now, he's located in Colorado. But they have been able to repair millions of acres around the globe at this point. And the demonstration sites will just fill your heart with the most incredible joy because they're doing it. They, You can see the before and after pictures. You can go and visit these places, and they will teach you how to do it. So if you have larger acreage and you want to figure out how to rejuvenate it, how to, how to bring the life back to it. Um, that's a great place to start. He's written all kinds of books too. Other people using his method have written about it. But the best thing is to go to a workshop. They've got a big conference coming up at the beginning of October all about how to make the connection between doing that basic repair, connecting that up to consumers, um, and making those links stronger. Because, of course, if there's no one to buy the products, the farmers can't go anywhere with it. Um, and their conference is fabulous. So, And you can watch it on... They're going to live stream it. You can go to a local savory hub and watch it with other people. Um, But this is such important work. I mean, without Alan Savory, we don't have a planet as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I'm like a one-trick pony on Alan Savory. Like, you've got to understand Alan Savory's work. But that would be a great thing. Like, go to the conference, get hooked up with the people who are all around the world training people how to do that. And if you've got larger acreage, that's really the people to learn from. Um, And that just, to me, is that's it. If we don't repair those grasslands, we're not going to survive global warming. Um, so it, to me, it's just that simple. So those are some great resources for people, um, who are probably your listener base who care about food and food justice. Um, I, I would start there if I was you. Lyra, that's, I think that's that on where I was looking for that. So thank you for that because I mean, I've been a supporter of the Weston I praise foundation. I've been a huge fan of the savory and soup and not necessarily yeah. gone, uh, into the giving side on that. But, uh, yeah, those, that's what I was looking for. What's that almost larger step, larger impact. Sure. Uh, to be able to make so yeah thank you very much uh on that um i guess going off of something like this like what is uh what is like your current area of study i mean you're so passionate about these things you can see it is there anything new that you're just kind of geeking out on (laughs) i'm writing a book with two of my friends called bright green lies and we are um discussing how the environmental movement 
is now just become, I don't know, the promotion wing for solar, winds, hydro, whatever. The idea being that we can simply, you know, drop fossil fuels and sort of reinsert in the exact same role um, solar and wind and still live this very consumptive lifestyle and somehow save the planet by doing it. And we just are all, we just feel like the whole thing has gone off the rails. And it's very frightening to me that that has happened. Environmentalism used to be about saving the creatures and the places that we loved. And instead it's become, how do we continue to consume those creatures and places? Um, but we're just going to power it with solar and wind now instead. And so <laughs> we're talking about how morally that's corrupt, but also not possible. That actually all of these alternative energies aren't alternative at all. In fact, there's a, a wonderful engineer, Ozzy Zenner, who has written a book um, that's called, um, oh gosh, I have it right here on my, on my shelf. It's... I would recommend this book highly to everyone. It's called Green Illusions. Um, I was going to hold it up, but you actually, we don't have the video on. Um, I'll make sure to get that in the show notes for everybody too. C-E-H-N-E-R. But his great phrase is, he says, look, there's not fossil fuel and alternative fuel. There's fossil fuel and then there's alternative fossil fuels because all of that solar and wind um, ultimately rests on the exact same industrial platform, which is coal and oil and gas. And they're all extractive, and they're just as destructive in the end as the oil and the, and the gas are and the coal. And he's an engineer, so he just walks everybody through it step by step. He's got some great videos as well. But we take that as our springboard. And so we're writing just sort of a deeper analysis of all these technologies, how destructive they are, how they're not a solution, and how there's no possible way they can continue to power this level of consumption with those technologies. And at the bottom, at the end of the day, why do we want to? This has been just the most destructive century and a half that we ever could have imagined. And it's, it's, it's at an end. I mean, we need to just admit that three generations of people got to experience this and we destroyed the planet and uh, trying to continue to power that destruction just makes no sense if we care about the planet. So we're, we're kind of, you know, we're at a crossroads as environmentalists and we need to face the facts that this can't continue and we're not supposed to want it to continue. So how did we go off the rails? So that's, that's what the book's about. So, um, it's got some geeky stuff in it, don't worry, and um, also some, you know, impassioned pleas for for a better way. So, when can we start uh, looking out and uh, finding when? When's this book gonna hit shelves? I guess is where I'm going. I don't know. Pro- give it a year or two. We're still writing it, and then okay. uh, then it's got to get through the whole publishing process. So, um, yeah, but we're excited about it. It's it's it just really frightens me that the again the people who care most about the planet don't seem to understand the scale of the problem. So that's what we're trying to address. Within this, can you even give maybe uh, a little insight uh, without, I mean, obviously going through the whole book, but what are the ways then, what are those alternatives? So I guess not alternatives. How do we replace it for the better, uh, whether it be the coal, the oil, the gas, or the, the wind, the electric? Like, What do we do to really make that sustainable change? So this is where people hit the wall because we have a hard time imagining um, a very different way of life. Um, you know, I'll start by saying that there were have been humans on this planet, you know, something like us for something close to two and a half million years, and honestly, we didn't wreck the place. In fact, we seemed most of that time to have lived in small egalitarian, matrilineal. Um, band societies where everybody's basic needs were met and we made a lot of great art and musical instruments and jewelry 
we painted on cave walls and seemed to have a pretty good time. Um, then everything changed. And we started to do this thing called agriculture. And immediately society gets hierarchical and militaristic. And 90% of the population is living in some form of bondage, um, living really miserable lives. Their skeletons tell just ghastly tales of a life of just being ground down, literally, just joint by joint, um, to do the work of agriculture and the work of the wealthy. And then 150 years ago, we figured out how to use fossil fuel. Um, so then, you know, there's this huge upswell in consumption because we could power that consumption. And now here we are at the end of the world. Um, so it's been a really short time that this way of life has been normalized. Of course, it's all people like me and you have really ever known. But given the scale of our time on this planet, it's really just a blip. So if anybody survives in 100 years, I can guarantee you they're going to be back to that original way of life because it's the only way that's sustainable. How to get from here to there? I don't know that I've got an A to B plan. I just know that it has to happen because the only sustainable way of life is a sustainable way of life. We can't take more than our share. And we've been taking millions of years more than our share in the last 150 years. And no rational person could really think that this is a way forward. So we have to repair what we've destroyed, um, and then we have to rejoin as participants. And I don't know how to do that in one lifespan, but that's all the time that we've got. So I think it's going to take like all hands on deck to figure out how to get back to those democratic ways of life that are, you know, egalitarian and peaceful and artistic and filled with dreams and joy and all of the things that we had before. And out of this nightmare, I mean, it hasn't even made us happy. Half of Americans have been on antidepressants at some point in their life. We're actually the most miserable people who have ever existed um, because everything that mattered has been destroyed. And, and that's our human connections and our, our connections to the other living creatures that are part of us. They're part of our, our biome. They're part of what we, who we evolved to know and how we evolved to know them and ultimately our place in the cosmos. And it seems to me all of that has been destroyed um, for corporate profit. I mean, really just so they could make money because all that plastic junk has not made us happy. So I just say that because people always, they get scared like, oh no, what am I going to do without my iPad? It's like, well, I think you'll actually be happy because we were happy before. <laughs> I know that it seems scary to think about the day that comes when there's no electricity and we don't have it anymore, but I promise you, you will remember how to sing. You will remember how to sit and talk with your friends. You know, You will remember how to have a feast and feed each other and it will be good. I promise you will remember be because we're animals. We know how to do those things. We know how to take care of each other. We're social animals and we get our joy from that. We don't get our joy from plastic screens. We really don't. I know they're addictive, but there's no joy in it. So I don't know if I've answered your question. There's got to be a way to do this because I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on my planet and I'm not giving up on my species, but I don't know. All I can do is keep fighting. You know, like there, there's two fronts here. One is to keep fighting to, to bring down the bad power so that we've got a, ch a chance at life. And then the other is we have to build up those alternate ways of being um, or revive the ones that we do remember. You know, if we have cultures that are still a little bit intact, that are older ways, you know, revive them, protect them, teach them, um, and remember how to be human with each other. I think that's, that's what's been taken away from us most of anything, you know, how to be human, how to be animals again. What is your favorite way to... Uh express your inner animal then um i would say 
my dogs. <laughs> I love my dogs so much. And I love the ways that we communicate with each other because, I mean, they probably speak 70 words of human and I can't say I speak any words of dog, but we're able to communicate still. And mostly it's because we pet each other and we feed each other. And um, there's an incredible bond there of just how much we love each other. And they would die to protect me and I pretty much feel the same way about them. But there's something so wonderful about having that nonverbal animal communication, just mammal to mammal, you know, um, that has really, I just feel like they've saved my spirit. And I didn't even know something was missing till I got my dog. So I, I don't know that that works for everyone, but it does for me is just having that just physical connection, you know, where they sleep on my bed and we wake up petting each other. And it's just that incredible, just physical, sensual pleasure in each other's being that is very encompassing. So that's definitely one thing. Um, I think also I do love singing with my friends. That's another thing. And, um, I think probably like a lot of your listeners, um, I love food. I'm a real foodie and it makes me incredibly happy to know the farms where I buy food, um, to the extent that I produce my own food. I've really enjoyed all of that. Chickens, ducks, you know, like goats, having those kind of creatures around has been really great for me as well. Um, and then making food for people is such a basic human act. It's not even a human act. It's more than that. It's like the universal language of I want to be your friend because it's how you make <laughs> friends with animals. It really is. Like you make friends with a dog, you give it a piece of bologna, right? You want to make friends with a cat, you know, you give them their tuna fish, whatever. It's like, you know, any animal, wild birds, you put a feeder in your yard, they come to know you. Um, I've made friends with wild pigeons that way. They'll eat out of my hand. You know, like it's food. It's just this basic, I want to be your friend. And I really like cooking food for people and having them enjoy it. And it, even if we don't acknowledge it uh, verbally, you feel that bond because you've fed people. Um, so I, that's something that I really enjoy. And I know that not everybody likes cooking, but I really like it. So that's another way that I definitely release my inner animal is by feeding my friends. I, I couldn't agree more. It's <laughs> I No, and that's one of the things like people will talk about, like, yeah, let's go out to eat. Like, let's do that. I still would rather you just go over to a friend's house or have them over just to enjoy yeah. that meal, uh, whether it be, yeah. I mean, it's summertime as we're recording this, like, hey, kicking out on the back patio, yep. grilling stuff up, whatever. But, oh, my God, it's it's such an enjoyable aspect. But I didn't think about it from the standpoint of um, the relating to the animal uh, side of us. Uh, and with, hey, you're right, my dogs, when, when I feed them every day, they're pretty damn happy about it. Yeah, too. they are. Yeah. Every day they're <laughs> happy about it. <laughs> Lear, one of the last questions I want to ask you here is what is your vision for a healthy future? Say 10 years, 100 years, whatever that might be, where do you really want us as a species, you personally, whatever it may be, where do you see this going? So my slogan is repair, restore, rejoin. So we have to repair the broken soil and the exhausted rivers and the trashed out grasslands and the forests, all of that has to be repaired, which means we need to start withdrawing um, from all the consumption that we're doing and reduce our numbers to something sustainable um, and then just only take our share. But all of that, we have to repair what, what we've destroyed. And that also means repairing the human connections that have been severed by sadism, by, you know, by those uh, institutions of power that have um, so hurt us all and 
hurt more of us more than some, but really destroyed our ability to be human with each other. And so that has to be repaired as well. Um, and then restore. So to the extent that we can, we have to bring back the species that need those homes. And it's really all of those species working together that are going to do that repair. But I mean, we can't do it. You and I cannot grow soil, but the ruminants and the grasses can, and all the other species will come back when a basic home, when those two get together, you know, when the grasses and the ruminants get together, everything else comes back to life. So, and we understand more about now about how to do that. And, um, you know, the timing and the numbers and all of that is being worked out by Alan Savory and his associates. And all we have to do now is follow the pattern and let it happen. So that has to be done. And then rejoin. And maybe this is the hardest part. We have to rejoin as participants. And we have to promise that we will never dominate again, that we will just be another part of that soil building community rather than thinking we are somehow lords and masters over it. This was not given to us. You know, we are part of it. And we need to take that humble place again and just make that promise to each other that, that we'll never be, become those people again, that we won't let that happen to our species and um, yeah, just live with that kind of joy and humility that life is an amazing thing and we got to be here and what else could we want? Like there's no need to dominate it. Just be it. Be part of it. That is everything that we could want and it's all here. We just have to remember it. Lear, who would you want to hear on this podcast and what would you want to either ask them specifically or just hear them talk about? Oh, I think you should have Alan Savory or one of his associates. Like, people really need to understand what they are doing and how important it is and how easy it is. It's so easy. You just let the grasses and the ruminants do it. And they are having such an incredible effect around the world. And we need to escalate those efforts. We need to accelerate that as fast as we can. Just even if it just means buying meat from those people, great. But more than that, you know, the governments of the world have got to start pouring money into this instead of what they're subsidizing now, which is more of the destruction. I mean, they're subsidizing wheat and corn and soy, which is the end of the world. Why aren't they subsidizing? the restoration of the prairie using bison um, or cows. I, it doesn't make any sense at all. So I would say Alan Savory, absolutely, hands down. I will definitely have to reach out to the Savory Institute. And like you said, anybody that just follows his practices yeah. uh, too. And I there's think. lots of them now. There's hubs all over. You know, there's probably one where you live. So get those people on. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, in closing, where can our listeners, uh, where can they find out more about you, what you're working on, what you're up to, just sharing everything, please. So the easiest place is my website, and that's kind of a joke because I have a funny name, LierKeith.com. If they don't remember that, it's fine. If they just type, type in vegetarian myth, they will find me. I am the only one who's written that book. So if you can't <laughs> remember my funny name, you can remember my book. That's easy. Um, and on my website, you'll find my upcoming events and my books and my YouTubes and my different interviews and anything you want to know about me will be there. Um, and also there's an organization that I'm part of. Uh, one of the books I wrote is called deep green resistance. And we also have an organization where we do political organizing for, you know, environmental things. And we're kind of radical. We're a little out there, but you can certainly look into it if you're so drawn and that's deepgreenresistance.org. Well, I hope everybody listens to this show is a little bit out there, a little bit, uh, <laughs> against the grain because it just makes it more fun. And I think it's going to be, uh, the way that we really get things done because just because of all, all that you talked about today, uh, I think this is one of those, I'm going to have to go back, listen to a few times, uh, because I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate how you just were able to succinctly just outline step-by-step, step, um, all, all of these things. So it, it really can go 
uh, a long way. Um, Lear, thank you so much. I'll make sure have all these links in the show notes. So if anybody has trouble <laughs> finding anything for any reason, you can go over, click there, check out learkeith.com, Vegetarian Myth, Deep Green Resistance, all of the above. Lear, thank you again so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Nick. This has been great. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you.